Hello and welcome to the Informed Animal Ally presented by the Vancouver Humane Society. This is the animal ethics podcast where we share the ins and outs of topics like cruelty, legislation, and advocacy here in BC and across Canada. Hi, I'm Chantelle Archambault, Communications Director for the Vancouver Humane Society. Joining me is my co-host, VHS's Executive Director, Amy Morris. Hello. We're in the middle of our series on animal well-being, where we talk about animal behaviors, how their needs may or may not be met currently, and what an ideal world looks like where all animals are given a chance to thrive. Last month, we talked about farmed animals and went through their natural behaviors species by species. This month will be a little different since we're talking about wildlife, and there are so many species of wild animal, but I'm really excited to see where this discussion goes. Yeah, before we get too far into it, I want to touch on an overarching concept. It's kind of background information for this discussion. When we talk about wildlife, we often talk about conservation because it's the kind of preservation of wild animals in our world and our communities. And it's focused a lot on preserving a species as a whole and on maintaining some biodiversity in our different environments. But it doesn't look at the well-being of the individual animal. So the lens we'll be using today is called compassionate conservation. And that includes the following guiding principles. First, do no harm. And second, individuals matter. Consider inclusivity. Focus on peaceful coexistence between animals and humans. And so throughout this episode, we'll be talking about ways you can help protect wild animals from the threats they face and think about the ways that they behave and why they behave how they do. So it's important to bear in mind, pun intended, (laughs) that through all of these actions and ways of animals behave, the goal is to treat wildlife with respect, justice, and compassion and allow wildlife to thrive. There's a great infographic on compassionate conservation that we'll link in the blog post that accompanies this podcast that goes into a lot more detail on what it is and how it functions. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that background, Amy. Now that we've covered that, I think it makes sense to start with a brief overview of some of the ways humans interact with wild animals and our relationships there. When we think of most people's day-to-day interactions with wild animals, many people live in cities, towns, suburbs, and they'll think about about urban wildlife. Urban wildlife refers to animals who have adapted to survive alongside humans and alongside the infrastructure we've developed. So those adaptations can include things like taking advantage of new food sources like garbage or some types of plants that we plant in the garden, building their nests in human-made structures and things like that. Yeah, urban wildlife, they might show signs of being habituated or unafraid of people and that behavior kind of develops over time as animals encounter situations that feel safer and safer for them. Alternatively, they can find ways to navigate in a human world that avoids people entirely. So just like with humans, um, wild animals will be afraid of what they don't know and comfortable with anything that feels familiar and safe. 
And so a lot of cases of urban wildlife conflict happen because there's things that make them feel safer, such as people providing food in environments that's predictable. And then there becomes a, a habituation to that. Some urban wildlife are considered synanthropic species, which means they thrive in human environments. Think of adaptations like pigeons nesting in buildings and eating drop food, squirrels living in trees from parks and gardens, rats living in sewers or buildings. Some people consider these species to be pests because living in such close proximity can lead to some human wildlife conflict. Other urban wildlife often live alongside human in urban environments, but aren't as dependent on human activities to survive. So if you think of an animal like coyotes, they're generally considered an opportunistic species. So they can exploit the resources in human environments, like eating small animals, fruits, vegetables, garbage, but they can also survive in a more natural landscape. They're also typically more wary of humans. Yeah, definitely. That brings us to talking about some of the threats that urban wildlife can face. You mentioned human-wildlife conflict, and that's something that can definitely have a very negative impact on animals. Generally, conflict arises when animals are causing damage, like chewing walls or making messes, like knocking over garbage bins, or if they're posing a threat or a perceived threat to human or pet safety, such as if you have a skunk nesting below a shed and the people who live in the home are afraid of their dog being sprayed by the skunk. In those situations, the outcome for the animal is usually very negative, and it can even be deadly. Often animals are killed. Two issues that have really been top of mind over the past year or two are rodent poisons and culls. Yeah, I can speak more to the rodent kind of issues and and poison as it relates to that. Rodenticides or rodent poisons can cause a great deal of suffering to animals at large. There's a few different categories of poisons, which we spoke about in our wildlife episode with Aaron Ryan last year. So definitely give that episode a listen if you'd like some more details. Essentially, poisons don't work immediately and they cause animals to die slowly, quite painfully. The anticoagulant rodenticides work by thinning the blood. So animals die by bleeding out or hemorrhaging. And those are the poisons most often used in Canada. There's other poisons like neurotoxins, which cause the nervous system to shut down. So animals can experience symptoms that are painful and scary, like weakness, loss of coordination, convulsions, and respiratory distress. So we've had some progress here in BC with permanent restrictions on second generation anticoagulant rodenticides called SCARs or SCARs, which are some of the most dangerous poisons and also some of the most likely to cause secondary poisoning to predator or scavenger animals like owls and eagles because they eat the poisoned rodents. But there's still some exceptions where those poisons can be used, um, and there's quite a few of them. And first-generation anticoagulants and other poisons are still allowed. So what we see in animal behavior adapting to this is there'll be rodents on the ground that are easy access to animals like owls and vultures, and then suddenly you have those animals looking quite sick in trees, being closer to humans than they normally would, and then needing to be brought to wildlife rescue centers. Yeah, that's definitely a really big concern. There are several municipalities here in BC that have taken the compassionate step of banning all rodenticides on city or town property. A great way that you, the listener, can advocate for animals harmed by poisons is to ask your city council if they haven't already, or the building manager where you live or work to commit to using poison-free methods. Moving on from that, there's also government-sanctioned culls of animals. So the Vancouver Park Board recently approved a plan that includes the option of killing geese. 
to control their populations. And we know that's inhumane and unnecessary. Evidence shows that habitat modification is actually a more effective long-term method. There was also the coyote call in Vancouver's Stanley Park in 2021, which happened after people reported coyotes approaching them and biting them. In total, during that, 13 coyotes were killed. And that could have been entirely prevented if better methods were implemented to prevent the feeding of animals in the park and also to remove attractants like garbage that can draw coyotes toward human areas. So it's really unfortunate to see these outcomes happening because we are not putting the measures in place to ensure human-wildlife conflict doesn't happen in the first place. And really, these are happening across Canada. These are some examples that are local to BC, but we see in eastern Canada, there are beaver culls that are common, which is pretty outrageous, essentially, because often the case is that the beavers are living in their natural habitats and the people who live in those areas have destroyed most of the trees and there's just a few trees left. And so then the beavers are working on the trees that are left. So these are the kinds of things that certainly uh, prevention and, and maintenance of habitat and careful planning are the best and most effective methods of dealing with conflict with wildlife. Uh, For example, you can prevent animals like rodents from entering buildings by sealing up access points and removing or sealing away food and other attractants. But the most important thing we can do is make sure that wildlife continue to be afraid of anything that might hurt them. That's why it's so crucial to not ever feed wildlife. If you feed wildlife, they start to see people as a source of food. They can become dependent on that food. And so if it's removed, they can become aggressive. And we've had folks get in contact with us asking for what to do because they've got aggressive raccoons because they stopped feeding them. We would certainly as humans do the same if we were fed regularly. Um, and then suddenly all of the food was gone, with nothing available to us to eat. I've definitely been around some pretty hangry people. And I imagine it can get pretty bad when an animal feels truly desperate from their hunger. Absolutely. Another way that people deal with wildlife conflict is by trying and relocating animals. And that is something that's been suggested when wildlife conflict arises. But this method still isn't perfect because it causes stress to animals and it can introduce new risks into their lives if their social structures are disrupted, if they come into conflict with other animals in the new area over territory, or if they come into a new territory and then they have difficulty finding resources in that new environment like food. Yeah, and there are some animals that do better than others with being relocated. And so it's really important to do your research if this is something that you end up being involved in in any way. Some of the other threats that are more common for urban wildlife include animals being hit by vehicles, urban development infringing on habitats and resources, like we talked about with trees and beavers, and noise and light pollution, which can disrupt natural behaviors and communication, uh, like with fireworks and other, you know, big kind of industrial impacts. And wild animals, including those outside cities, are also impacted by climate change, which can affect their habitat, their temperature regulation, resources like food and water, and behaviors like migration patterns. Yeah, one thing that a lot of Canada has been dealing with lately is forest fires. Temperatures are just rising across the board and precipitation patterns are also changing, which means we're seeing an increase in both 
fire-prone conditions and also flooding at different times of the year and in different areas. And forest fires and floods are very dangerous because they directly cause the deaths of humans and animals who are caught in them. They also destroy habitats, they displace animals, and they make it more difficult for them to survive and maintain their social dynamics. It shouldn't be all doom and gloom, but we'll just say a little bit more here of, of something that, you know, we're talking about habitat destruction from climate change, but there's also human-caused destruction of habitats, such as deforestation. So logging is a major industry here in BC. There are some considerations in place for protected species, but many animals that are squirrels or birds that aren't protected species end up losing their homes. Logging roads that haven't been decommissioned after use also make prey animals more vulnerable to predators. So particularly caribou have been really significantly affected by the destruction of forests and the creation of logging roads and other forest service roads because it provides wolves easier access to caribou. They can follow them down the road and that leads to to big declines in the caribou populations. So rather than addressing this root issue where there's a lot of habitat loss in key areas where the caribou populations are living, the BC government has been carrying out a wolf cull since 2015, and it involves shooting wolves from helicopters and, and a, a lot of other means of culling. So now we have this situation where both caribou and wolves are suffering just because we are trying to maintain these logging roads. We know that both caribou and wolves Wolves are, are complex. They have unique family structures. Uh, when wolves are killed, it impacts their entire families. Just like humans, they have the ability to feel loss and they have to grieve these sudden deaths as they are already struggling to survive. So to be an active ally for the caribou and the wolves in BC, you can advocate for stronger wildlife protection laws, including the decommissioning of forestry roads and better forest restoration management. You can share about the importance of compassionate conservation with those around you, recognizing that well-being isn't just about biodiversity, but it's also about the well-being of the individual animal and their communities that get impacted. You can also avoid having fires during fire bans, carefully dispose of cigarettes, and be careful in the backcountry using machinery that causes sparks. And of course, you can write to the provincial government to ask them to stop using public tax dollars to pay for cull of wolves. There's certainly laws and practices that are in place that are harming animals and then also stewarding the environment that they live in is very important. Moving a little bit on from that, we obviously can't talk about wildlife behavior without talking about the ocean's most populous wildlife, which is fishes. If you'd like to learn more in depth about fishes and their behaviors and the issues that they face, you can check out our podcast episode that was just about fishes. And we'll include a link to that in the blog post as well. But there are a few key points I'd like to touch on here. So fishes demonstrate a lot of different behaviors the same way that species on land do. Some live in schools, others are solitary. There's some interspecies friendships of fishes that are mutually beneficial. Just like mammals, they end up having lice and they benefit from grooming. Some fishes also travel long distances while others exist in very small habitats, and they focus on protecting their local homes. And there are more than 33,000 different types of fish species. So that's the type of diversity we're speaking about when we speak about this animal. Yeah, and and so we think about how fishes are impacted. Um, some of the threats that they face include these fish farms where diseases from captive fish populations can get into the wild species. Fish farms 
dams are often densely packed, which really don't allow fish to exhibit their natural behaviors to swim and forage the way that they would naturally. And fishes are also threatened by pollution. While the physical pollution is a problem, we know, you know, all about the plastic in the ocean. Some of the biggest harms include the waste products that are running off of intensive agriculture, such as keeping animals like cows and pigs. Their waste contains a certain degree of nitrogen that washes off into the waterways that causes harmful algae blooms, also called HABs, in the water. Kind of colloquial term for that is the red tide because it gives a different tone to the water. So in areas that have red tide, the fish are poisoned by the algae blooms and die. And then animals like turkey vultures can be impacted because they eat the fish that have died from the harmful algae blooms. So the best and the biggest impact that we can do as individuals is to take fishes and other animals off our plates. Consumption of animals for food is really driving those complex issues, and they're causing significant physical suffering to both individual fishes and entire species. And there are other smaller methods we can take every day to do our part to steward the environment and reduce pollution like reusing instead of using single-use plastics, taking the bike instead of driving. Yeah, and certainly there's a lot that we can do just recognizing that the less animals are farmed, the less the ocean is going to be impacted by these harmful algae blooms. So doing what we can to reduce the number of farmed animals kept. And it's amazing how often we see these interplays between the impacts on farmed animals, the impacts on wildlife, and the impacts on the environment. And so there's sort of like, you know, we we can move from thinking about wildlife in the wild to thinking about wildlife in captivity. It's sort of this almost interplay between farmed animals and wildlife. So the issues that we face and really animals face when they're kept in captivity is that they can sometimes, you know, their environments are enriched during they feel engaged by them. But most commonly, their behaviors are boredom, uh, repetitive behaviors, stereotypies, just like we seek out ways for indoor cats to have full enjoyment of their spaces, like building catios, providing different toys, treats, and play. Wild animals need access to spaces and activities that make their lives worthwhile, even if they are kept in captivity. So while the best thing for wild animals is to just be free in in an environment that's suitable to their, essentially their skills and their kind of the climate that's right for them. Sometimes they do end up in captivity, sometimes intentionally by humans, other times just because they get injured or something like that. And they don't have the skills or capacity to care for themselves in the wild. Unfortunately, facilities that house wildlife in captivity often lack the staffing and capital resources to provide spaces for the animals they care for to ensure their needs are met. So for example, some animals aren't provided the opportunity to hide from public view or the temporary temperatures in their outdoor enclosures are too cold for their normal body temperatures. So they end up being in tiny spaces for long periods of time just because it's the only space that's warm enough for them. And incidents regularly occur of people getting bitten or animals becoming depressed, dying at ages far younger than their wild counterparts. If you've ever observed animals in captivity, you know it can be this like really strange experience. And I have that every time that I I observe it. Seeing 
seeing the animals themselves can provide this sense of beauty. You know, it's there's something unique about it, but it's juxtaposed usually against these barren enclosures, cages. You see pacing and bar licking and sort of like lying and staring off or charging fences. And these are maladaptive behaviors. The spaces can feel downright uncomfortable. I once visited a facility where bears were made to perform. That facility is still running today. And last year, when a bear died after 19 years of performing, the facility claimed that the bear loved making people laugh and was happiest in front of a crowd. And so it's really common for facilities like this to anthropomorphize wild animal behaviors in order to make people feel at ease and really buy into the experience that they're seeking. Yeah, it's so sad to think about. And it's easy for people to forget because usually visitors to places like this will only be seeing the animal for a few minutes at a time. But this is the animal's entire life, day in and day out. I just find it wild, no pun intended, that animals are still being kept for use in entertainment, particularly in the film and TV industry, because it's so unnecessary. I would have thought that would have been phased out by now with all the amazing new technology that we have. There have been a few really major films that have come out recently where animals played a pretty large role in the film. But thankfully, all the animals in the film were computer generated. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. And animals that are kept for performing are often kept in small cages and they deal with frequent travel. Their lives are akin to that of research animals, which we've talked about before in terms of the degree of confinement that they are put through. But it's even more stressful because their environment is constantly changing and they're around unfamiliar people. Mobile exotic animal petting zoos are really similar to this. The animals have to deal with frequent transportation, being kept in small cages, being handled by different people all the time. Despite the risks around salmonella, reptiles are a popular choice for mobile petting zoos because they're slow to get away. But for them, it can be quite uncomfortable to be handled. It's also very important for reptiles to regulate their own temperature and the conditions they're kept in and handled in don't allow them to do that. It's it's really complicated, right? Because we know that uh, it's not ideal to keep animals in captivity, but the solutions to that are complicated. Certainly, zoos and aquariums are trying to argue in favor of letting animals breed as a way for them to exhibit natural behaviors. But then their offspring often die or are forced into a life of captivity where we have this repeat pattern of, of boredom and repetitive behavior. And since such a sparse patchwork of laws exists for these animals in captivity, their ability to exist and express natural Natural behaviors outside of breeding is equally sparse. The laws around wildlife and captivity are made at the provincial and local level. And so advocating for these beautiful animals can include asking the provincial government to better protect them through limiting captive breeding, putting an end to the use of wild animals for any kind of entertainment, and asking the federal government to put very strict limitations on the importation of exotic wildlife. Yeah, I think that the breeding argument to allow them to exhibit their natural behaviors is really interesting because it just feels very convenient 
that zoos will argue in favor of animals expressing their natural behaviors when it's about breeding, which is something that allows them to draw in more people to see the new animals and keep making money over time, but not when it's about something like moving the animals to a climate that's more appropriate for them. And it's important to look at those arguments critically and see how they're being used to maintain the status quo and make more money rather than do what's best for the long-term well-being of the animals. We've talked a lot about situations that are a little bit, you know, not great when it comes to animals. It's important to also maybe take some time to reflect on the animals that you find interesting. Learn about what they need, what their behaviors are naturally. What are their behaviors in captivity? How does that differ? And really take that time to energize in a way and think about how lovely it is to have this diversity of species in our communities. You know, take some time maybe to watch a Douglas squirrel and look around, look at the way that they chew on pine cones and leave a big mess and and sort of start to take in the environment and see it as a, a community that we all share together with others that have family structures, with others that have complex systems the same way that we have complex systems. You know, they're going to the grocery store is taking a walk to the tree and our going to the grocery store is maybe taking a walk down the block, finding those similarities and connecting to then get the motivation to do the advocacy and the hard work that it takes to help the animals. So some big takeaways, help wild animals stay wild by not feeding them. Even birds, I know that's a really controversial topic. If possible, plant bushes and things that are sort of natural resources that will last a long time that birds can access and use rather than providing a source of food that's potentially variable. When law change opportunities come up, make sure to speak with representatives like MPs and MLAs about compassionate conservation and the importance of considering individual animals' well-being. Certainly, that's important when it comes to things like the wolf call that are ongoing right now. And support and share ways of learning about animals that don't involve keeping wild animals in captivity. So how do we better observe animals in nature and appreciate them there? And how do we connect with you know, the people in our lives who might go to a zoo or who might want, let's say, a, a mobile petting zoo of reptiles to come to their children's class? And how do we have these complex conversations of understanding better how to have good relationships with these animals while making sure that they get to make choices that are for their own well-being. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing those steps. And every single action we each take in our own lives is amplified by sharing it with others as well. So that's very important. Thank you to everyone listening for being here for this discussion. If there are any other topics you'd like to learn about related to animal well-being, please feel free to send us a message on the Vancouver Humane Society's social media. Or you can also email info at Vancouver humanesociety.bc.ca. We would love to hear from you on your thoughts on this topic. And we hope you will join us again next month. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. Definitely head out and develop a new appreciation for the ducks and squirrels that you see around you. Take care. Bye. The Informed Animal Ally is a podcast by the Vancouver Humane Society. 
If you found this episode helpful, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review to help us reach more supporters of animals. To support this project and other initiatives to build a kinder world for animals, you can make a donation at vancouverhumane.ca. You can also follow the Vancouver Humane Society on Facebook at Vancouver Humane Society, Instagram at Vancouver Humane, or Twitter at VanHumane. The music in this episode is the song Jonah's Message for New York by Dr. Turtle, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being an animal ally.